please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yeah, I am Þóldur Tinna Sigurðardóttir, but you can call me Tinna. Okay. Or Tina. <laughs> is, it, is it Tinna or Tina? It's Tinna, but okay. often just easier to just go with Tina. In English, it looks like Tina. T- yeah, T-I-N-N-A. Yeah. Now, let's go into a little bit of background about you, because you're one of my younger guests that mm-hmm. I've had, which I enjoy like younger guests immensely, mm-hmm. because you have a very different perspective mm-hmm. on everything. So sort of how did you come to even being in the creative arts were your parents creative the was it some teacher like mm. what was the thing that sort of led you into this industry so yeah my family isn't like artistic um like my sister is kind of related to the arts she's a set designer but my parents yeah both were just kind of not educated and just wanted me to have like hobbies and stuff and then like around 16 14 i just started volunteering for festivals and it was kind of misunderstood at home just thinking that i was like looking for parties or something but i was actually looking for ways into yeah like festivals and how they're run and like a pivotal moment for me definitely was like annoying the then director of Lunka Art Festival, which is based in the east in a fjord. Um, I annoyed her so much via email that I, she let me be like a volunteer for the board. A, a volunteer for the board? Yeah, the board of the festival, which is basically the production team. Okay. They just called it the board. Okay. Uh, and then I, yeah, kind of managed to wind my way through like yeah getting to be there in like 2015 when i was 19 years old and i had like volunteered a bit before that as well but that was like definitely the key and i still like curate for lunka festival like as a freelance job i still do the festival to this day well that brings up an interesting point like so you have a what a a full-time job here at the iceland art center uh it's like kind of mixed uh i'm full-time when the Venice Biennale is on or like yeah like full-time when we're installing like preparations and then I uh, go back to maybe a lower percentage and then I can have some like flexibility to do freelance curating. I just love that you all do this like percentage thing <laughs> yeah. when it comes to that like because in the like in the United States where I was growing up it's like part-time or full-time and part-time does not mean 50% necessarily and full-time also does not mean 100% either Mm -hmm. so like I this this choice to go with these percentages I kind of love it yeah I guess like up until getting this job at Kim or Icelandic Art Center I have been doing part-time and then like you know the basic part-time you know but then now I'm doing this like flexibility between percentages, which is kind of funny because it's my first kind of full time job doing for like an institution, which is really interesting. Okay. You know, what's more, even more interesting to me. Your first full time job is working on the Venice Biennale. <laughs> Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's stuff that people dream for their career. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, yeah, I just did that first first job out of school. Yeah. But I guess it's because I've been, like, I started out volunteering so young. That was my strategy. I was like, if I start young, then I, like, get opportunities even, you know, like, yeah, younger. Uh, Younger than most, maybe. Or I don't know. I didn't really have a strategy. I just went from one gig to another, you know, the gig economy. Definitely younger than most. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I think of people that are doing Venice Biennale work, I'm thinking of over 40, maybe even 50 years old. Yeah, definitely. Like I in Venice was like running between like, you know, hiring a venue for a party. And I had been like a huge chunk of the job is just like emails, preparing everything because I'm the project manager of the Icelandic pavilion. And then when I finally met people in person, they were just like, oh my God, you're really young. And I was like, yeah, yeah, uh, don't mind. Like, we don't have to talk about that, but like, I wanted to talk about the venue or, you know, talk about this. Yeah, no, I want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, but it, 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 to a certain extent, I believe it, because it's, uh, Iceland is a younger country. Mm-hmm. And I think perfectly, it's perfectly legitimate to have a very young person sort of uh, coordinating all of this stuff. Because you're not, uh, just to be clear, so like, let's separate out all the different tasks for the pavilion. Mm-hmm. You're the project manager, mm-hmm. but then there's a curator who's yeah. different. And then, of course, there's the artist that's different. So you're more to the, lo- the logistics, let's say. 
Yeah, basically, like I came into it in early December. So Sigurður Guðjónsson, the artist, Monica Bayo, the curator, uh, and Eyður Jörundsdóttir, the director of the Icelandic Art Center, had been kind of working on it a lot. Yeah, there was also a former project manager on it, like in the conception of it. But obviously because of the delay and stuff like that with, you know, the thing we don't speak about. Um, Do we not speak about it? I don't I, know. I, I speak about it. <laughs> the plague. So, Really? Is that how you all refer to it here? The plague? No, I'm oh, okay. just being like, I don't know, podcasty. Okay, you're being facetious, as I understand. Move on. Okay. But yeah, so then I came into it and kind of took all of these different strings that had kind of been prepared and just, yeah, the final crunch, you know. I love how you just sort of like brush over it. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just pulled together a Venice Biennale. No. A pavilion. no big deal. Just <laughs> tied some strings up. I want to know so much more details. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it, how does it even work? Like, I, I have no idea. Obviously, I've never participated mm-hmm. as an artist, or as a mm-hmm. curator or anything. Like that. I've attended it. Yeah. But, like, but there's so many things that go into it. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so specific to Iceland, because yeah. of, of course, that's your experience. So I'm not going to ask you about other people's experiences. How does it sort of technically, because that's sort of what you did. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, so I'm not going to ask you about curatorial questions because mm-hmm. that wasn't your role, mm-hmm. but like technically, how does it even work? So the, so what happens? Like, is, is the artwork produced here and then shipped? That's a simple question. Mm-hmm. And if so, like how much of a hassle is that? Even though this was my first time doing it, we've had like a lot of different kind of a ways of having delivered work to the Venice Biennale. I mean, we had, I, I can't remember exactly who, but I think when you were thinking about Eyfjörð was a representative, I think they like the showroom here and it was shipped like in its entirety ready, like with the hang or like everything over to Venice. But with us now, because Siki is like a video, basically like uh, a lot of video art, we were kind of lucky. We just had to have like a good technical team working with Idotech and which is based in Berlin. So they just basically brought projectors. And then we work with a really lovely kind of technical representative, the Biennale calls it, but it's basically like a production company based in Venice that like helps us out with like construction workers and like yeah, so it's like a huge production in a way. Like like I said, I come from kind of grassroots festivals where I'm just like painting and like doing everything. So it's kind of funny just being like, yeah, being there for the first week and just like meeting all of these people and they're just doing the work, you know? <laughs> and just pointing fingers yeah, at basically, And then wanting to like get to paint and then just the, the Italian guys just being like, no, go, basta. And I'm like, okay but do you need help? And they're just like, oh no, go. And I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah. I, used to, I used to be a roadie. I used to build the stages for concerts, oh. the big steel girders and all that. Yeah. We used to, I used to build those and all that. So like I've, I've, I've had a lot of that kind of laborious mm-hmm. work in my life and I love it and I miss it dearly, but bodies can't handle mm-hmm. it at a certain point. So the installation was basically like uh, twofold. It was like um, doing the, space really clean and nice building the structure that we project on and then yeah getting the tech in and the technicians from berlin and poland to set up and then it was just like yeah final tweaks with Siki in the space and monica Bayo as well like in dialogue with us but it's a lot of different kinds of work you know because we did a publication so we were like the first ones that had set up like completely set up our exhibition quite honestly a video installation yeah. is probably one of the faster yeah. installations in the in the, the art world but it was funny going to arsenal because they opened on the first of march for install i was there on the first of march and like there was no one there like we were i think the iris pavilion which is like a couple of pavilions down from us in arsenal they were also there but then there was just like empty spaces and then we yeah, put it up, photographed it for our publication, the catalog Perpetual Motion. And then we went home to Iceland again, and then we came again. But then people were arriving maybe three weeks after us and just staying, pushing through straight to the pre-opening. 
but it was, it was kind of nice getting this breather and then being able to focus on like RSVPs and like, you know, invites and everything. Well, and printing and publishing this catalog. Yeah. And I mean, there's, a, there's, that's the thing is like most people, even people who attend the Venice Biennale, just think it's like poof, magic, it's yeah. here. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, each pavilion puts in a year, mm-hmm. if not two years worth of work to mm-hmm. get to that point to make it look effortless. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was a feat in itself. <laughs> now, who? I, one thing I've never understood about the Biennales in the broad stroke is, of course, who pays for all of this? I think it's really, really different when it comes to the different countries or participations. Again, not asking about other countries, so your yeah, experiences. Sorry, sorry. In Iceland, it's mainly the Ministry of Culture and Education um, that funds it. Because it is like one of the biggest projects of the Icelandic Arts Center, but still there are like other projects, of course, that the Icelandic Arts Center does. And especially in recent years, it's been trying to like focus on like like uh, a holistic approach to like more than just the Biennale and trying to like help promote Icelandic artists abroad and like, you know, just help out with funding and like stuff like that. But yeah, it's basically the Ministry of Culture and Education. And then we also have, depending on each participation, different kind of sponsors or like, how do you say, like partners? Sure, sponsors, so, partners. Yeah. yeah. So like this year, the Reykjavik Art Museum was helping out with the publication and Business Iceland is also like a creative partner where helps out with promotion and stuff like that. And then of course, yeah, I guess that's how it's funded. But then we also work with Sudden in the UK, which is a PR company. So it's a lot of different like stakeholders. You have a PR company yeah. for your pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Yeah, but we've been working with them for quite a while. Like it's just like a, how do you say, like a relationship that has been withhold over different participations. I, no, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying it's just sort of like, I never really thought that deep into it that the, yeah. the, the pavilion would even need slash want uh, something like that. But like, I mean, it makes sense. You're putting a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of money into something like you better publicize it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Otherwise it's a waste. I guess it, it was funny. The minister of uh, culture and education said at the pre-opening or inauguration, she was like, this is the Olympics of art. Yay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is. I mean, yeah. the Olympics is every four years, the Biennale is every two mm-hmm. years. I mean, it's pretty epically large. And of course, everybody is sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, we don't like talking about this in the arts, but they are competing. Yeah, like they're, yeah. They're really, you know, everybody's trying to not necessarily up one another, mm-hmm. or, but but you're trying to be, you're trying to present the work that is going to, in some way, mm-hmm. be the one that's on the cover of the magazine or the one that gets the most press mm-hmm. coverage or whatever like that, because... I mean, that's what you're there for to a certain extent. Yeah, and I guess it's like exciting and like, yeah, it's like with these like big institutions, it's also like problematic in a way, you know, like biennialization. You know, we had that like, what? I can't <laughs> pronounce that. it. That's why I don't speak art speak. I already B- told biennale? you. Biennialization. You know, this like trend of yes, biennialis, okay. you know. And then like now, especially now with like, research emphasis on transnationality and not being bound to the nation state necessarily. And also I think Sikki and we and the team have noticed how people tend to now associate, because he is the representative of Iceland, and people tend to like associate his artwork, you know, which landscape in Iceland inspired you to make this work? Or I can see like the Northern Lights, I can see like glaciers, I can see yeah, like sand dunes. But those are so obvious. I, you know, you yeah. want it to be something more profound than the the tourist destination. Yeah, but then still, like in the exhibition format of the Biennale, being like national participations, it's hard to like evade stereotypes, even though they're basic. You know, and then Sikki is always like, ah, oh, how do I just segue from that question? I just mentioned a couple of places you like, and then state that it isn't like directly connected to the work you know yeah conceptually it's associated with yeah or just like i like glacier lagoon but like it isn't doesn't have anything to do with my work you know or i don't know i think it it is it definitely does affect the interpretation of the work 
Indeed. Yeah. Now, okay, so let's take a step back. So mm. Venice Biennale is one thing, but you yourself, you are, you, so you work for, I think, at Art Center, you work with the Venice Biennale, but you also do your own curatorial practices. Mm. You work with public sculpture installations. You said public art. Uh, public programming. Public programming. That's like where I'm finding my way. Like, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Like I did art theory and art history, and then I did arts and cultural management with a focus on curating and public programming and like radical museology. I'm sorry, did you say radical yeah. museumology? Museology. Museology. But I guess that's just a phrase from Claire Bishop, but like I was just focusing on institutions and like trying to, having come from grassroots festivals with like open and more maybe hierarchical dynamics, I was just like, what is it like to be an institution? And I felt like coming before my MA, I felt like I didn't really understand how this all worked, especially in Iceland or even then, like even then abroad. And I was just like, who are these players? And like, how do I approach them? And found it like a maze. Yeah, I got like a newfound confidence in my MA. And I just like emailed a couple of people and like tried to like tear down some walls on my own. So coming from grassroots mm -hmm. and now more or less being one of the most bureaucratic things I could possibly yeah. think of, what like how has that sort of affected your impression of all of this? Like of of just like the art scene in Iceland or just like You can take that however you want. <laughs> no, I think it, it's now like being a part of an institution especially like kind of affiliated with the Venice Biennale, which is one of the biggest institutions in the art world. I, I think I kind of thought I would be like an infiltrator and I would be like, oh my God, this is all so messed up or something. But then at the end of the day, being part of an institution isn't like being part of a evil corp, you know, like it is human relations and it is individuals. And I, yeah, I guess I kind of challenged my bias a bit. Now, there, just to be clear, there are some evil corporations definitely, in the arts world. Definitely, <laughs> but it's still like, I think, but of course it's hard. To, yeah, it's hard to maybe step back and like be critical when you are just like in production and coordinating and you're just like talking to different stakeholders and you know it's hard to question yourself when you're in it, I guess. But I think... I have like a more positive outlook now than I did then. What I'm trying to do in my, my work here, like at the Icelandic Art Center and like my creative practice is just opening it up to others as well. Trying to like help people out that are maybe having a hard time with approaching institutions. Sure, I mean, grassroots is great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I come from a grassroots background myself, so like I'm all for it. But it, the problem that I find with grassroots is that like, there's only a certain level it can achieve until more or less it has to become some sort yeah. of like mainstay thing. It has to become part of the system if it wants to continue. Otherwise, don't get, and don't get me wrong, because like some of the most amazing grassroots things that either I know of or I participated in sort of have this beautiful sort of like arc of like coming in, being amazing, mm -hmm. you know, shocking, and then flaming yeah, out really fast. Definitely. And, and sometimes that's in what it was meant to do, mm -hmm. and that's great. Mm -hmm. But like if it's meant to stay, if it's meant to become a, 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 a something that exists for decades or so mm -hmm. on, it almost has to grow and become part of the system that it was meant to be a contrast to. Yeah, I think definitely. Because the festival I've now been with for like, what, seven years, Lunka, it's like 10 years old. And that's also something that I'm like, thinking about like this idea of growth, you know? And I think like there's a difference between endless growth and then growing and changing and ad adapting, you know? Mm. And I think for me, um, I'm thinking now about like Ahmed Agut, the artist. I read an interview with him where he just said like, you know, it's okay to be a part of an institution if you are like trying to change it. And I think that doesn't have to be like tear down the walls, you know, like totally radically, like, you know, just like tear down the system and build a new one. But it's like, I think it is then 
as an active agent within an institution, you should be open to the changes and try and make change happen, even though it's maybe uh, small or more covert. Like, I think that's a good thing. Even like whether it's Icelandic Art Center, which is more, you know, official, or like Lunka, the art festival that I've kind of grown up with. I think it's just important to be open to change and trying to like, yeah. If it makes sense. It, it does. It's so funny. <laughs> when you said that, the thing my mind went initially to like, when you get into a relationship with a, with a whatever, like, so you said an organization, I'm thinking like when you get into a personal relationship yeah, yeah. and if you go into a personal relationship with the intention yeah, of changing no, the partner, no. it's like, that's never going to work. But I think it's more like, and then connecting it back to like growth and growing. Sure. So it's more like if it were a personal relationship, your partner grows or like your friend is growing and you like, you don't try and stifle it. You let it grow and you, what evolution, you let go of things. Yeah, evolution, might, whether it's in know. an institutional situation or whether it's in a, you know, personal artistic creative thing is, is inevitable in my mm -hmm. opinion, because like if an artist or an institution sort of just continually repeats itself and does mm -hmm, the same thing over mm -hmm. and over, it becomes stale, yeah. boring and not interesting. Like you, the, there has to be that amount of sort of, questioning yeah. of what they're doing and why they're doing it and embracing change yeah. and so on and unfortunately not everybody sees it that way i think it's also like another thing that connects to this like kind of is the institutional mentality also needs to be kind of less re like reactive and more like proactive and that comes back to like you know like the external environment around institutions and not and then having trying to have it not bottom up or like not bottom up and not maybe bottom up and top down at the same time where it like is proactively reaching out for kind of like you know like i do <laughs> and like I, i'm sitting there thinking like like you sound like me at like 23 <laughs> yeah, and yeah, i'm just yeah. like and i'm sitting there i'm like no it doesn't work like that really like we all hope it does yeah we wish it does yeah you know like in a perfect world, it would mm -hmm. function in that way. But unfortunately, money, power, yeah. egos, like all these different things get in the mm -hmm. way of like, you know, it happening. Because like, I can think of a number of institutions that I've run into in my career where uh, I've seen proposals put in mm -hmm. that are amazing. Yeah. But because, let's say, the director or the curator didn't think of it themselves, they were like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, because it's yeah. an ego thing. Like, they needed to come up with it, you know. So, like, there's so much, so many things that are involved in this that have yeah. actually nothing to do with the merit or quality of the no, work. definitely. And it is, like, also, like, ego is a huge part of it. But I still feel like, you know, I feel like, I'm quite positive about institutions here in Iceland. I feel like they are maybe a little bit smaller than the ones in America and the UK. Like the team themselves are smaller, you know, and then there is like, it isn't Tate or it isn't like Guggenheim. It isn't like a billion people, you know, it is like. No place is the Tate or the Guggenheim. <laughs> yeah. mean, those are sort of like islands upon themselves. Yeah, true. But like I did my and my thesis on Tate, so like that's why I was. But yeah, but I think after having researched Tate and then like working here, I thought I would be maybe like starting to work somewhere like that, where it's like very rigid, like hard to make change, you know. But I feel like the Icelandic Art Center, we're like four people working, yeah, part time, full time, you know, mixed percentages, but. It's only the four of us. And then I feel like conversations can be had. And like, we are, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm positive. Well, I think Iceland seems to be very um, supportive of mm -hmm. arts in general, because I mean, I know that there's a huge range from authors to musicians, to visual artists, performance arts, all the kinds of different kinds of stuff. So I mean, they seem to be very supportive. Now I'm an outsider looking in and so like you're an insider mm -hmm. looking out. So like, are, how does it feel from being on the inside? Like, cause like for me walking around Reykjavik, I'm like very supportive. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there are museums, mm -hmm. murals, sculptures mm -hmm. everywhere. Like there seem to be 
visually sort of superficially very supportive they also have you also have the what the the artist salaries you Mm -hmm. have i mean there's lots of things that like coming from america i'm like holy crap you all are incredibly supportive but as a person who lives here i'm sure you have a slightly different perspective yeah i think like when it comes to cultural policy it's it's yeah it's yeah it has to do with like external cultural policy here it, yeah compared to another you know you can always compare but being a part of it here i think there need to be like maybe some changes i like no, there need to be changes and they need to be maybe a bit more flexible or have like different different kind of uh, funds because the artist salary is kind of brutal if you think about it. It's like a very limited group out of like a very big community and like it's kind of homogeneous who gets it as well. And then it's like, you know, our oldest artists are maybe applying, and not that old, but like, you know, our most established artists are getting it. I'm guessing you're saying old artists are what, like 50, <laughs> you know, which is my age, but that's fine. No, but like, I meant like most established and then have like, are like icons still, you know, like are like kind of big figures in the Icelandic just art history are getting it, you know. And then, you know, Paul, who's just like a, newly graduated like how how is that comparable i don't know if i like that i think it could be maybe i segmented a bit or you know maybe emerging artists and but then they're always like when it's bureaucratic and you have boxes and you're categorizing it's also excluding always but i feel like there are some changes like in cultural policy that might have it like a bit more process based not not on the like outcome necessarily Hmm. you know what's happening in the uk like well, like I've also noticed there are a lot of these kind of bureaucratic box ticking processes yeah. that like they say things like, so what kind of work do you make? And it's like painting, yeah. you know, sculpture, blah, all these very traditional mediums. Mm-hmm. But like I know almost every artist I know that's like probably over the age of, let's say, 40, they're all working between mediums. And yeah, they're sort of working definitely. on and they sort of. They 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 make work more of a, as a reaction to a concept. So mm-hmm. like they can't say I'm a painter because mm-hmm. they might use some other medium for that mm-hmm, project. Mm-hmm. So like the the nature of even like defining people by their medium mm-hmm. is I think also becoming a bit difficult. Yeah, oh, definitely, and because also like art in a sense isn't like a, how do you say like a a commodity in a way. Like it is. Of course it is, like in the broader art market terms, but like still it is like a bit more flex, you know, and that's also something we at the Icelandic Art Center are thinking about. We aren't really like marketizing commodities. What we are doing is like fostering and maintaining relationships, you know, between foreign art professionals and artists and also with the Icelandic art scene and then vice versa. So it's a bit different than just like, oh yeah, we want to have a platinum record. Well, okay, within that, like, so, like, the commodification of the art world Mm -hmm. is an interesting question because, like, nothing, and I don't, please, please, Icelandic artists and everybody here, don't take offense to what I'm about to say, but, like, a lot of the artwork that I have seen while I've been here, I would say would be a difficult commodity, Mm -hmm. let's say. Like, they, they are not you know, object-based things that like somebody could buy for their home. They're more, insti- what I would define as like institutional mm-hmm. work. So mm-hmm. like the only people that have enough space or money to either afford or put this whatever art piece is generally an institution or yeah. a foundation or something like this. So like, it, it seems to be a, a thing to like not make commodified things. And it's, to a certain extent, just like pretty much everywhere in the world, it's mm-hmm. a bad word mm-hmm. when you sort of say like, yes, I produced this to be sold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's also just the cliche, like, you know, artists can make money and like, just because they're making money, it doesn't mean they're like Damien Hirst or like Jeff Koons or something. I admire Damien Hirst and <laughs> Jeff Koons. I respect what they have done. Yeah, definitely. But they're a bunch of bullshit. Across yeah. the like, but, but I mean, my God, they are amazing at what they have chosen to do. You know, yeah. they, they went down a path and they freaking embraced that mm-hmm. thing to no end mm-hmm. to the complete mockery of the rest of the art world. <laughs> but, yeah, and I guess like what I respect is about like yeah it was so blatantly like they just 
embraced it so blatantly. And that's kind of what I respect because then maybe there are other bigger artists that are maybe producing a bit more like socially engaged things or like, and then it becomes a bit more problematic maybe because it isn't so blatantly like, yeah, we're just gonna sell it. You know, we're just, it's all about that, you know? I mean, it's hard that that, that balance that we all go through mm -hmm. of like, I've got to make money, mm -hmm. but I also want need to stay true to my vision. Mm -hmm. That is the eternal problem yeah. with the arts. Like, and I mean, whether yeah, it's even an institution as a, yeah. or whether it's an individual artist, that, that's or as a curator. But like regarding the art you kind of see on the streets of Reykjavik, or you know, like in the museums, I guess like what you're seeing is like these are the institutions that you've been like visiting, which are the museums and like the maybe bigger galleries. But it's just like tip of the iceberg really like I was just thinking about the museums and the galleries because I know what museums you've been to even though you haven't told me where you've been you know what I mean there are only so many museums exactly like there isn't that a lot and then I feel like grassroots things are happening more and maybe they haven't become super accessible already there's well, but that's why they're grassroots yeah I, 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 true and maybe also because I'm yeah quite young and stuff I know of them, but like, I'm not sure the museums do, you know, like I do. Yeah. I mean that, that, you know, that's the fun of grassroots mm -hmm. is that it's not part of the institutional mm -hmm. curriculum, whatever, but they don't get enough exposure. And yeah. it, it's sort of this mixed bag, like of like, I love grassroots. And oftentimes when I go to those exhibitions or events or whatever, like there's some of the most amazing things mm -hmm. because they don't have the restrictions mm -hmm. that a lot of museums and cultural institutions have. Because mm -hmm. like when it comes to a cultural institution, they are often getting sponsors, partners, mm -hmm. grants, whatever other kind of thing, government funding from Ministry of Culture. And they have to tick certain boxes mm -hmm, and meet mm -hmm. certain criteria, work with certain gender specific mm -hmm. or, or ethnic, whatever kind of like criteria or, and, or accomplish a certain amount of footfall mm -hmm. or uh, said, you know, all these different quantifiable mm -hmm. outcome kind of things the grassroots just doesn't care about because mm -hmm. they just want their point is to produce something that mm -hmm. had never been produced before. Yeah. 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 Definitely. But I, I want to ask you, like, did you go to the Martial house? Uh, the Living Art Museum in Klingonbang. I walked by it, but it was closed. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah. But that's like, I, I like them as kind of the twilight zone between like these grassroots things and then like the, you know, bigger museums here. Well, it is an interesting thing. I mean, the Living Arts Museum is, is uh, it's it's basically like a contemporary art museum yeah. versus a a historical archival museum kind of thing. But then still they have like a huge collection that is all artist donations and they are one of the oldest artist run museums in Europe. So they still have this huge collection and archive. Some pieces are still just like anonymous because they have, we were talking earlier about growth and stuff, like they were super grassroots in the beginning of like, it was opened in the 70s. And I love how you're saying you're like the oldest museum <laughs> in Europe in the 1970s. I was born in the 70s. Come on. All right. No, but yeah, it, it was, it has like a historical relevance for contemporary art, you know? So yeah, it is a contemporary art museum. It isn't like historical, but like, it does have a very big collection and still is receiving and taking like donations from artists. And I really like that space here. And it does, you know, yeah, manage to kind of have some connection to like supporting emerging artists and like, but still like exhibiting maybe more like more what you would see conventionally in, in like the Reykjavik Art Museum or, you know, yeah, funny to think how like the art scene here is. It has just recently opened up to me, so I'm also just kind of thinking out loud at that this point, and this is helping me also position myself talking about these experiences and like the stark contrast between grassroots and then like super, like institutions. It's inevitable, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to make a living, that's that's what the hardest thing is. Mm -hmm. But the, some of the most beautiful things are when like grassroots things have the ability to keep their 
sort of core philosophy, mm -hmm. but somehow still become a part of the system. Like mm -hmm. that's the best, but it's the rarest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's also something, because you were talking about kind of funding and like, if it was really supportive or not, the system here. And I think it is super hard for places like that are growing, maybe like growing into becoming more of an established uh, exhibition space or like ha has its collection or it is a hard place to be because to be honest, like the government doesn't support it a lot. So it is like a very hard place to be, you know, it kind of in this like in between between becoming super like kind of established and in institutionalized but so yeah like spaces like Klingobang, the living art museum maybe smaller galleries i don't know but obviously it's a different ballpark when it comes to galleries but you know it is how do i say it? like they are doing a really great job well i mean that's the thing like uh, throughout the doing this podcast like what i've realized is like you can be creative or be an institution or whatever at a certain level easily successfully perfectly fine mm -hmm. your whole career if you want but there is a transitional point mm -hmm. whether it's an artist career or an institutional you know longevity that like to a certain extent, you have to make make some changes mm -hmm. in order to sort of elevate yourself or evolve yourself mm -hmm. into a another level mm -hmm. and that's one of the hardest things yeah. to do like because it's a huge gamble and it might fail mm -hmm. but you almost have to do it or else you're just going to be staying where you are yeah i think that's very interesting in a way also now like we've been talking a lot about the institutions but in my experience as a like freelance curator as well here in Iceland and I know like my peers kind of like it also resonates with them it's a weird place to be being a freelance curator in Reykjavik or Iceland because you have like these kind of people that work for the museums that are like just in these like you know full-time jobs and they will be there until the day they are forced to retire <laughs> yeah but then you have artists in here in Iceland has been very artist run like the contemporary art scene has its roots in artist run spaces and especially like you see all of these museums have been built for artists like originally right like Reykjavik Art Museum has three buildings that were all built for different male artists at it like in their time and like Gerdar Sabni even is built for a female artist and I think the Living Art Museum I mean it wasn't built for an art this like one artist but it was built by a lot of different artists there has been like this transition also between like um, or maybe even like tensions between older generations of artists kind of welcoming art professionals like a new generation including myself which are like i don't make art i don't make music and i've had like questions asked when i work on projects like so what kind of art do you make and i'm like i don't make art and the person is just like what what are you doing here? And I was like, no, like I do everything except for the art, but like, I love art. That's my passion. And then they're like, okay, strange, you know? And then like, it's just left at that. So there's also, I think that's maybe something unique with the Icelandic art scene, or I don't know. The generation gap is a, is a thing. Like, I mean, the, you know, older generations are looked at they're they're one of two artists in older generations mm -hmm. across board they're either the successful ones mm -hmm. or the bitter ones <laughs> <laughs> and that's it and there's no real in between or the, well i guess the third one would be the people that gave up yeah but i also think it it has like seeped into the younger generation as well you know because they're bitter also <laughs> no i wouldn't call them bitter but i think it's also really interesting because we have one art academy yeah, we call it Iceland Academy of Arts, I guess. I was like thinking about the Icelandic uh, title, but there it is also kind of artistry, the university. Obviously there are like some art professionals, but the main teachers are practicing artists. As they should be. Exactly. I'm not saying anything specific. I'm just thinking out loud here, but I think 
having been in art theory, which is the University of Iceland, we had like a collaboration between the two schools. And so we would then take like classes together, these young emerging artists and like us, the art theorists or art historians. It's a bachelor, you know. There would be moments where it was like, oh, you get different grades because you come from the University of Iceland. So you have like more, like you have to write more. And the artists, as we all know, are all dyslexic. Like this was literally set in a classroom where I was studying. And like, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm quite young, you know. And I was like, wow, this mentality, I think it's changed in recent years. There has been changes in the university. And I'm not like being shady, but I'm just saying like, this is an experience I had. And I was so shocked that I was like, at a certain point, even though they're in their bachelor, if they do a PhD in visual arts, they will have to write their artist statement, which has to be theoretical, you know. <laughs> you just touched on like my bane of my existence, which is like artist statements. Yeah. I fucking hate them yeah. so much. Yeah. But being practical, I was just kind of, and it, it stays with me this moment in the classroom. And it stays with me. And I think it will always stay with me because it did kind of reveal some bias between artists and like art professionals or like people that are adjacent to artistic creation or you know what i mean well i mean there's the long-standing tradition that basically artists are outcasts or unacceptable mm -hmm. people for normal society so they find their own tribe outside mm -hmm. of you know bureaucracy and corporations and stuff like this and to a certain extent proud of that here mm -hmm. but to a certain extent like why can't we be professionals mm -hmm. it, but just choose to be creative in our mm -hmm. professional practice? So, yeah. Definitely. And I think things are changing, like even for me, or maybe it's just because now I am more involved in like, I don't know if it's me or the environment, but I feel like things are changing. and I, Or maybe my outlook and like my understanding is a bit more nuanced. So now I'm like okay it is not as bad as i thought maybe so speaking of things changing you brought up that there were a number of museums that were two old white men <laughs> and very few limited uh for women is there is there some sort of gender disparity in this region or sort of mixed uh, perspectives on genders in the arts yeah i think in recent years there has been i th i i know that there was like a little like statistic around the galleries in Iceland that they like the majority of them have like a majority of male artists and like exhibit more male artists. Shocking. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, with the museums as well, it does affect like it, it Hapnarhuse, uh, the Har Harper House of the Reykjavik Art Museum is obviously very tied to Erro, who's like uh, a a man and he's yeah i think it's like in the contract of the house there has to be a permanent exhibition with him on at all times with like very few exceptions you know so it affects what they exhibit of course but they are trying i think they have been very aware of like trying to have it like um, gender equality between the exhibits Technically not gender equality, considering there's more than two genders now. Exactly. And I think that is also something that is happening at the institution. It is like trying to also surpass this kind of dichotomy, you know, uh, which is good because it needs to happen. There needs to be kind of a more complex kind of understanding of society and I think I talked once to like, because yeah, public program is where my interests lie. But there was a, in the UK, Richard Martin was like talking about his experiences of curating for Tate and being head of public programming there. And he was just talking about his mentor and like saying that what he wanted to try and do with the public programming was actually to reflect the society. So then just like going into statistic about like, what are the biggest minorities in London? How do I, in a kind of like holistic long-term, like how do I approach these kind of different community members to like establish long-term relationships with 
these minority groups rather than just like tokenizing or like you know uh, <laughs> an institution tokenizing that's surprising also <laughs> but yeah so i think i think there is a shift and i think there is just also just like yeah kind of trying to use the museum as a platform for different voices that are like but it's it's always hard you know with just like there's a difference between public programming and then exhibiting you know like what you exhibit in the museum and then what you kind of how you engage with society is there's also that dichotomy of like and tension between curating those different types of curating like sometimes they would say like public programming has it so easy because you actually it's easier for you to like engage with these different communities in the society but it shouldn't be like it shouldn't that shouldn't be like the perception i guess i think it should be like you have a whole big museum you should be able to at least represent yeah society in a way it's like yeah i don't yeah all right. One of the last things actually I wanted to ask about that I jotted notes down about was you mentioned the the idea of um, that the Icelandic Arts. God, now I can't even think of what you are. Icelandic Arts Academy. No, no. The, you were this place. Icelandic Arts Center. Arts Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that um, they were in, trying to encourage Icelandic artists to be exhibiting and showing outside of Iceland. Mm -hmm. I've been always wondering, like, when people are in certain countries, and you know, Iceland is a very specific example of this because you are an island. So, like, how important or how involved is the process of like being part of the greater art world versus sort of being Icelandic? Yeah, that's really interesting, and I've thought about this a lot because I'm sorry if I, I offended by calling the rest of the art world greater. That no, probably no, is well, you fine. know, the larger art world <laughs> no it's fine it is really interesting because we have some like quite successful artists that have been living in berlin or belgium for a really long time <laughs> I, I know i had this conversation with another guest okay, about okay. berlin yeah about, like why is everybody going to berlin i i i think it's also just like i i don't think they all stay there but you you we have like artists that are quite successful and they stay in berlin yeah well, Berlin, don't get me wrong, very supportive financially, mm -hmm. sort of governmentally mm -hmm. for artists, even foreign artists. Mm -hmm. Like, so even if I went to Berlin, like they're very supportive and very encouraging yeah. of artists moving and living there. So like, I love Berlin. I'm not questioning Berlin. I just find it very funny that everybody goes to Berlin. Yeah, actually, like often some artists are more kind of successful here domestically and then not abroad or, you know, they're quite successful abroad and then maybe don't have as much visibility here because you were saying like that the iceland seems like superficially to be quite supportive of art and music and da, da, da. but then the reality of we don't have an artist visa so it's super hard for artists that are non-european so american canadian um you know south american african indian to actually stay here. Asian, just yeah, be inclusive. Like, uh, and that is something that is actually now starting. There is a group, a collective, that is trying to raise awareness of this problem here. Okay, but just to be clear, okay, you're talking about an artist visa. And for the American listeners, you have no idea what we're talking about because there's no such thing in America. No, and I guess like for Icelandic listeners as well, they're trying to raise awareness about this and maybe that's a nice way to end kind of my contribution to your podcast is just like it is really important and it's kind of brutal that just had an event here that was called why don't you just marry an Icelander so like literally people would be like oh so how can I stay after my masters or like how can I stay on I've been here for a couple of like 90 days which is like the limit or something how can I extend my stay and then like literal like bureaucratic people would be like uh can you marry someone I married a Czech woman so that yeah. I have EU citizenship. Exactly, but yeah. still it's... Sorry, it's, honey, that, that's a total <laughs> joke. But it like puts in a... Even though you have someone, it would put like a tremendous, you know, like pressure on your relationship Okay, as but well. wait, let, let's take it back a second <laughs> because again, there are listeners all over the world that yeah. have never even heard of this thing called yeah. an artist visa. 
I know about it in Germany, mm-hmm. which is basically if you are an artist and you're a practicing artist, so you have, or, or even curator or anything mm-hmm. like so mm-hmm. in the arts, you, there are certain countries in the world and it's not every country by far, but I know Germany has it mm-hmm. is you can apply for this visa and basically the government will let you stay there, mm-hmm. you know, for extended periods of time, two, five, ten years yeah. on this visa that is as an artist mm-hmm. or as a creative person. Mm-hmm. And they even have grants and support mm-hmm. and like they'll even offer like in Berlin in particular, I know they even offer like subsidized studios mm-hmm. and other sort of like things like this for people on this visa. Mm-hmm. And that is not existent in the United States. And not in Iceland. And not in Iceland and probably not in the Czech Republic yeah. either. So like, so it's a very rare thing, but mm-hmm. like the countries that seem to have this opportunity, ironically, I have a lot of artists. Yeah. <laughs> and what is a bit like, just for the listeners that might be interested in coming here and like have a practice here, you can stay if you're hired on like a full-time contract that's a hundred percent. A hundred percent. As like what you have, like, how do you say you have to have an MA degree and you have to be specialized in something specific and you have to be hired on a contract doing exactly that. But that's just a visa. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's Basically. nothing specific to artists. Visa, and it's so right? hard because for artists, you never kind of are fully employed, you know, you're kind of, and you can't start your own individual company. Like it is like a, mess so like i think it's nice to mention it here just to raise a bit of awareness well, I mean, about it, it. it's an interesting thing because like at, at iceland on the one hand you as creative people want to get your stuff out into mm-hmm. the world and you also want the world to come here mm-hmm. and sort of see and experience mm-hmm. and participate here mm-hmm. but a lot of governmental bureaucratic stuff mm-hmm. makes it very difficult yeah. to achieve these things in both directions yeah that's the thing uh, in this panel that I referenced earlier, like the had, like how do you say it? A president, of dean, the, yeah, dean of the uh, Academy of Arts. Yeah, dean. I was just talking about like when we went to Schengen, like how it was presented to her was just like, oh great, we can like travel in Europe as much as we like, but no one was at the time. It's like been a while. At the time, no one was talking about, oh, and then no one can come in, like, from, you know, outside of Schengen. And I think that's the thing. And that also ties into my work with Icelandic Art Center. It is, like, we want to, like, be able to establish connections and meaningful long-term relationships with not only European artists or, like, art professionals. You wouldn't know how, this is going to just give you how horrible my, probably, American education Mm -hmm. is, period. Just, like, a poor education until I moved to the Czech Republic with my Czech wife. So once I was married and physically moved to the Czech Republic, prior to that, I had never even heard of Schengen. Right. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I did not even know what that might, because my wife was like, oh, well, we'll just go on vacation to like Croatia. It's a Schengen country. I'm like, what's a Schengen country? Mm -hmm. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, I know. Like as an American, we know NATO, we Mm -hmm. know the EU. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> so like Schengen, I had no idea what that was until exactly. I actually lived here. And I think a lot of people in Iceland don't know about it. I don't need to, to be all practical purposes. I don't know enough about it to even talk intelligently. About <laughs> yeah. It. Like, no, but yeah. I'm just aware that basically I can travel to Scandinavian mm-hmm. countries as well as like basically yeah. the EU, anywhere in the EU without having passport yeah. controls. Yeah. Just whoever who got invited to the party, you know. <laughs> so that's also. Yes, I have, I have this lovely se- separate passport of married to an EU citizen. Wow. Yeah. It's basically my visa. Because like I joke, when, when I got married to my wife, people joked that she married me for a green card. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I married her for an EU visa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, uh, it is interesting. I think. We've managed to talk about a lot of different things. Your marriage. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. So anything else about like sort of going, you know, getting art, Icelandic artists out into the world versus the sort of in trying to be more inclusive of bringing uh, other influences to Iceland? I think like most artists, Icelandic artists do like go abroad to do their MA. 
so that's like a huge just the moment like it's very nice because then these like connections are kind of established naturally and that's like how you would want them to be established i guess but then also there are like with the Icelandic Art Center, like uh, we are like doing projects and like, you know, facilitating dialogues for artists, Icelandic artists to be able to go abroad, like funding wise. And yeah, we are kind of like an information center as well. So if people are interested in like coming to Iceland, we help them out as well, or, you know, give them maybe the tools to be more kind of prepared to navigate coming here and like yeah try and make connections for people all right last little bit any advice for artists from outside or even inside about sort of how to navigate their careers a little bit better let's say it's gonna sound so boring and lame but email like just find the emails and like just email people and like ask kindly for advice. And I think from my experience here in Iceland, when I have like people are always very supportive and just like, yeah, no matter if you're like Icelandic or you come from abroad or you have an Icelandic citizenship, but maybe aren't like, you know, born here or born and raised here. I think it's just like, don't be shy about just emailing without having really a, kind of strategy or like agenda if you have any questions just find the email of the museum director or like someone working there and just email them and be like hey i'm wondering like how would i be able to exhibit at some point like what would i have to do and people will i think most often be up for meeting you for a coffee and just chatting about it and that really like just like interpersonal conversations really help you just to with your confidence and I think it's in the end of the day all about your confidence and we're all kind of very capable of being in this community together and we just need to trust each other more I guess yeah relationships are the foundation of it all I mean a lot of us are very romantic myself included that we believe like merit of the work <laughs> is the most important thing but like in the end, like even if you make the most amazing stuff, if you don't have the network, that peers, those whatevers, like it's not going to get to the right people. Mm -hmm. So like it's always, yeah, to to my detriment, like I made the mistake of not making enough friends basically yeah. in early in my career mm -hmm. uh, as some of the other people that like I went to school with. They made lots of great friends and mm -hmm. I can see that their career tra trajectory mm -hmm. sort of went a little bit better than yeah. mine. And it's of my own doing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I blame nobody else. I was mm -hmm. an arrogant little shit in my youth. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's my fault. But it, it is a very important thing that a lot of people don't understand. They, they, they want it to be about the mayor. They want it to be about these romantic ideas of being in the arts world. But in reality, it's really about the, the relationships that you build. And I think, yeah, and I think like the relationships that you have can also affect like what you produce. If you are in a, and I think that's the thing, like, it's not just about networking and like superficial connections. It is about friendships and like lifelong friendships and, and yeah, and these like, dialogues and like, and also just like having different friendships with, you know, people of varied age and like, just like always establishing these friendships on an equal basis and then basing it out of respect and friendship. And then you learn the most from each other, you know? And I think that's the most beautiful advice I can give. Sure, yeah. Anytime you try to <laughs> use somebody, yeah, they yeah. know they're being used. Yeah, right. And like, it never goes well. Right. So I think that's the thing. I've gotten where I am now because of many amazing people that have been my seniors, but the red thread through everything was just like them treating me like an equal and me kind of growing into that position then because these amazing people i was like i'm so grateful thank you and all of these people were just like hey no you're like you got this you know like you are my equal we're working together you're not working for me and that is so amazing you're very lucky yeah i guess so yeah all right well thank you very much Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.